Welcome to Secrets True Crime, the disappearance of Jessica Hamby. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the disappearance of Jessica Hamby. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. This episode does contain foul language and is not suitable for younger listeners. This is episode six of season three of a serialized podcast, and the episodes are designed to be listened to in order. Jessica Leanne Hamby has been missing since January 3rd, 2018. At the time of her disappearance, the 24-year-old mother of three was a beautiful brunette with big hazel eyes. She had a head full of long, thick hair, was five foot two inches tall, and weighed approximately 125 pounds. In the four and a half years since Jessica was last reported to be seen, the stories regarding her disappearance and fate have been plentiful and the facts scarce. In season three of Secrets True Crime, The Disappearance of Jessica Hamby, we are starting from the beginning. And by the beginning, we are beginning with Jessica's life six months prior to her disappearance. We are going to focus on the details and try to discern fact from fiction. After Kimberly found out her son was dead via a phone call asking her where she wanted his body taken, she drove straight to the funeral home. I went to the funeral home after I talked to the investigator. I went to the funeral home and I told the lady I wanted to see him. And she was like, I don't think you want to see him. And I said, I do want to see him. For one, I want to make sure it's my son. And it's not just somebody saying that it's my son. And I said, for two, I think that might help me. Little did I know that didn't help me. I mean, that, that, that didn't help a bit. But, but that's what I wanted at the time, you know. And, and I did. They, they undipped the bag. And when I tell you, the smell almost knocked me down. Like it was horrible. Horrible. But... I seen the tattoo on his chest, and I think that's how they identified him, because he was black. He was completely black, except for right on his chest, and the he had a tattoo that said 1997 on his chest, and the 97, it was locked off. So you could see the 97. That's all I've seen. Like, then she just zipped the bag back up. So, I mean, I know it was Jeremy, but I kind of wish I'd have listened to that lady, because, you know, that kind of gave me some... Bad issues were sleeping, you know, for a little bit. After Kimberly left the funeral home, she drove to the Haleyville Police Department to meet with investigator Tim Stein. Tim told her that Jeremy had committed suicide by hanging himself from a tree limb with a belt. He'd been found not far into the woodline behind a home on Benefield Farm Road, where a man named Steve Benefield lived, and directly behind the camper where Benefield's grandson, Joshua Levi Hyde, lived. That's right. The same Josh Hyde who sent Kimberly that message, telling her 
that Jeremy wasn't ever coming home again. This this is Tim's son's story. This is what he told me. During the course of the investigation, like this was after they had already found Jeremy. He said, I was at that place five times. I went there. I talked to Josh Hyde. And I said, okay, so you're telling me right now that Jeremy has been dead this whole entire time. Because at the beginning of the conversation, that's what he told me. He believed that Jeremy had been dead the whole entire time Jeremy was missing. I said, well, you didn't like smell anything. Did you walk behind the trailer? Because, you know, I mean, that's that's where everybody keeps saying that Jeremy walked out behind the trailer and he just come up missing. Nobody went out there to check on him. Nobody. I mean, common sense tells you if you're in the woods and somebody goes out there, well, they don't come back. Well, I mean, would you not go out there and look? But I said, did you walk around the trailer? Did you go out there? Yes. Yes, we did. We we were outside. And I said, and you didn't you didn't smell anything. You didn't notice anything odd. You didn't. No, no. But I said, you, you're saying he's been dead that whole entire time. We're in the middle of summer right now, and it's hot. So I'm pretty sure if somebody was, like, out there and, and you know, decomposing out there, you would be able to smell him, right? He just looked at me, and then he said, I never smelled or seen anything, which made no sense to me. So then he goes on to tell me that my son was found in a tree that was 18 foot. The tree was 18 foot high and that nobody would have been able to um, put his body in that tree because nobody could climb that tree. And I said, so if nobody can climb the tree and my friend, my friend went with me, my friend Regina. Well, her name's Larissa Sosa. but So she had went with me and she was sitting there and her husband now it's her husband was sitting on the other side of her. And I said, so you're telling me that nobody can climb that tree, but but you're going to tell me my son climbed that tree and hung himself from that tree. Well, yeah, a person of their own climbing a tree. Yes, they, they could climb it. But somebody trying to put somebody's body in there. No one person's going to be able to put somebody else's body in a tree. And I said, well, there's another question that I have, and that's about what y'all said or what was said that he hung himself with which was uh, his belt that went in his pants. And he just looked at me. And I said, my son doesn't, he doesn't wear belts. Could he have gotten a hold of one? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, you know, anybody can get a belt from anywhere, I guess. But I said, y'all are saying it was his belt. Well, it was about his size. That's what he said. And I said, I just really don't believe that in midsummer, he's been out there. And you're telling me he died you know, from the time he's been missing. Yes, that's what I'm saying. And I said, well, he's been out there all this time, midsummer, hanging in a tree. I said, I don't think he'd still be hanging there if, if he was hanging there. I'm pretty sure he would have already fell out of the tree. Like his body would have decomposed and he would have came out of the tree. But I said, I'm not, I'm not a, a medical expert. I'm not anybody like, but I said, I just don't see that happening. I said, well, I'm just telling you right now because I said I'm, I'm getting ready to go. But I said, because I'm not going to continue this conversation because obviously you're not you're not on the same page as me. So I said, I'm about to go. But I said, I'm just going to tell you that I'm not going to let this go. I said, because I know my son did not commit suicide. And he said, ma'am, the best thing for you to do is just to let this go because nobody else is going to do anything about it. 
because it was ruled a suicide. So I just got up and I just walked out. I asked Kimberly if investigator Tim Stein told her that he ever walked into the woods on Benefield Farm Road to look for Jeremy. He didn't tell me he walked into the woods. He told when when he was there, like investigating, you know, there, he said that he walked around behind the trailer. He didn't go into the woods. Jeremy Abbott was five foot six inches tall, and he weighed approximately a hundred pounds. Sources on the scene the day he was found have told us that Jeremy was hung with a size 36 men's belt. I think it's safe to say that a man weighing 100 pounds wasn't wearing a size 36 belt, but the details surrounding the belt will become even more bizarre a little later in the story. Also, these same sources told us that Jeremy was found hanging from the lowest branch on the pine tree, and that branch was 18 to 20 feet off the ground. The fire department had to be called to the scene to get his body out of the tree because law enforcement couldn't get to him. This is one of the many parts of this story that absolutely blows our minds. There were 32 days in between the day Kimberly filed the missing persons report and the day that Jeremy was found. The initial story from Josh Hyde was that Jeremy walked into the woods behind his camper and he never saw him again. Why did law enforcement not walk into those woods at any time during those 32 days? Wouldn't that be the very first thing that should have been done? Sources on the scene that day described the location of the tree as being a maximum of 40 to 50 feet into the wood line. It was just inside the edge of the woods. Those sources also told us that Jeremy could be seen hanging from the yard, and they found it hard to believe that he wasn't seen by the residents. It was even noted that the grass in the Benefield yard went right up to the wood line, and that grass was being cut. It was also said that Jeremy could be seen from the back door of the camper where Josh Hyde was living. How was a man hanging from a tree for over a month, not seen or smelled, and all that time during the summer in Alabama in such close proximity to people's homes? When Kimberly left the Haleyville PD, her friend insisted that Kim come home with her to stay because she didn't want to leave her alone. Another disturbing event happened while Kim was there. Not knowing Kimberly was there, one of her other nephews called her friend. You know, he called while I was at my friend's house and she had it on speakerphone. And he had said, they found Jeremy, they found Jeremy. And and Jay had just called me and told me he was cut open and all his insides were out and And he's just going on and she hung up the phone on him because I'm sitting there. I'm sitting at the table while while he's telling her this. And she just hung up the phone. She said, Kim, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry. And she just walks outside. Well, I guess she had called him back. And then when she came in, she said, Kim, he said that Jay called him and told him that all this stuff happened to Jeremy and that Jeremy was a snitch and that. Um, They cut him open, and he was still alive. They cut him from his his breastbone all the way down to his groin area. 
and his insides were hanging out. And I just like, I, I, I kind of lost it at that, that, that point. Investigator Stein had informed Kimberly that the case was being handled by the Marion County Sheriff's Office, which is the same sheriff's office that was in charge of Jessica Hamby's missing persons case. The next morning, Kimberly drove to the Marion County Sheriff's Office in Hamilton to meet with the investigator there. Well, that's when, when you know, I went and I was explaining to him that I didn't think that, that my son killed himself. And the Haleville PD had told me that Marion County, since the address of where he was found was in Marion County, that Marion County had taken over the investigation And that's when he said, well, there's not really, to my knowledge, going to be an investigation. He said, we're going to talk to people, you know, and and we we need to talk to Josh. He said, as you know, he was arrested on a unrelated charge while they were there, you know, when they found Jeremy. And so I was just looking at him and I said, well, that's kind of strange, right? And, and so, you know, I'm in my head, I'm just sitting there thinking, well, so they went out there and then, you know, he's just arrested, but they don't think there's a crime. But I think they said they questioned him for he had gotten arrested the day that they found Jeremy and he was in jail for I mean, I couldn't tell you how long, but I know at least three days he was there. The investigator there had told me that they questioned him for three and a half hours. But during that three and a half hours, he also said his statement had changed between what he told him had happened that night and what he told Tim Stein and Haleable when they were all out there the day that they found Jeremy. And I said, but you don't think that's suspicious? Like you don't, I mean, you're in law enforcement and, and he's changed his story. For one, he told me one story like, I mean, Jeremy wasn't coming home, Okay. Well, how did he know Jeremy wouldn't come in home unless he knew something happened? Well, then when Tim Stein, I guess, you know, spoke with him, he had told them that him and Jeremy had been using drugs all night long or shooting up all night long. And then Jeremy and Rebecca got into it. And Jeremy just said he was going to go outside and kill himself. But that's not what he told the investigator in Hamilton. He told the investigator in Hamilton that him and Jeremy had been using drugs for just probably a couple hours before that. And then him and Jeremy got into it. Jeremy said he was leaving, that Rebecca was supposed to be coming to pick him up. But then he walked out into the woods. Another thing that Kimberly brought up to the Marion County Sheriff's Office investigator was the fact that Jeremy didn't wear or own a belt. She was shocked by his response. Him son, you know, he, he told me that, oh, he hung himself with a belt. Well, when I got to Marion County, that's not what I was told. But it's a completely different story because I mentioned that to him. And he said, he told you he was hanging with a, a belt that you put in your clothes. And I said, yeah. He said, ma'am, I don't, I don't know where he got that. And so I just looked at him. And I said, well, I already told him I knew he didn't hang himself with his belt because I'm, I'm saying he didn't have a belt. He didn't wear a belt. I just, I don't believe that story. So then he proceeds to tell me that he hung himself with a belt 
that came off of a car, like a, a pulley belt from a car. And I said, so how, how could that happen? How could that happen? Because, okay, a belt that goes around something on a car, it's round. So how is he going to climb up an 18-foot tree, climb all the way out on the limb, put the thing around there, put it around his neck, spin around, and hang it to like, what you're saying doesn't make sense to me. And I said, maybe it's just because I'm not seeing it. It is not making sense. Could it possibly happen? I don't know, but it doesn't seem plausible. To this day, Kimberly still isn't sure which type of belt was used to hang her son. This is another point we will come back to. As soon as she found out her son was found hanging, there was a past event involving her brother, J.K. Abbott, that Kimberly could not get out of her head. You know, I said, well, my brother did threaten me. And I said, you can you can verify this because I'm sure all calls from a, a federal prison are recorded, right? They're supposed to be recorded, right? And I said, you can verify that he called because he threatened me over a, I mean, he used the phone from the prison, called me collect or there's little whatever they are, paycom things or whatever they are. And threatened me, threatened to kill me, threatened to kill my kids, threatened to kill my sister, threatened, threatened to kill practically my whole family. And I'm sure that was verified because the, the officer who, whom I spoke with at the, the prison, he told me if we verify that this information is true, he will no longer be in the state of Alabama. We will get him out of here as soon as possible. I said, well, he's in prison right now. It's not like he's going to be able to kill me right now, but I'm just saying like, He's a threat. He doesn't need to be out on the streets. He doesn't need to be out of prison. Like he, he's a threat to everybody that comes in contact with him that, you know, he thinks has wronged him. And I mean, I didn't do anything to him, nor did, did any of my kids, nor did my family. He was just sour because he spent all of his life in prison because of his, his choices. But it was probably three weeks later and they moved him. So he, he went to Florida but I did tell the investigator that. And once I mentioned that, that's when he became a little bit interested and he started writing down people's names. He got his name, how old he was, where he lived, who he associated with, you know, then the, my nephew, you know, I, I give him all the names of people that associated with them at that particular time that I knew of. He assured me that he was going to do everything he could to investigate just to see if there was any, I guess, foundation to what I was saying. If if there was anything that would connect those people to what happened to Jeremy and he would be getting back with me. He didn't get back with me. When Kim told us this, we had so many questions and here are some of the details of what she described to us. Three or four years earlier, JK had been serving time in a federal prison in Alabama. He called her one day and he told her not only was he going to kill their sister, he was going to kill her too. He went on to tell Kimberly that he had special plans for her. He described to her how he was going to make her watch while he hung all of her children. And once they were all dead, he was going to kill her too. As if that wasn't enough, he also told her that he was going to burn her grandchildren alive. A couple days after Kimberly met with the Marion County Sheriff's Office investigator and told him about the prior threat from her brother, 
J.K. called her with a new threat. He told her that if she didn't stop talking, she was going to end up like Jeremy. She contacted the Haleyville Police Department to file a report. She told us that investigator, Tim Stein, did work on that case. And a couple weeks later, J.K. was arrested for facilitating an escape of an inmate. Even though Kimberly believed that J.K. was on parole at that time, he only spent a couple weeks in jail for that new charge, and his parole was never revoked. When Kimberly hadn't heard back from the Marion County Sheriff's investigator a few days after her first meeting with him, she went to see him again. By then, the stories were already circulating about what happened, how it happened, who was there, who done what, you know, so I had more people's names. I went back down there and I spoke with him again. And I told him that at that point in time, I had Jeremy's phone. And he said, do you have it with you? And I said, I don't have it with me right now. I said, I didn't bring it with me. You know, we're, we're trying, I'm trying to get somebody who can get into it. Well, he assured me that they would be able to get into it because they have people that work with them that are technical people who can uh, do things like that sometimes. He said, it's not always possible. And they, they don't always do what they set out to do. But he said, if you're willing to bring the phone down here, we will see what we can do. I said, well, the phone's locked up and it's locked up for like a million and something. I mean, way on out there in the minutes. I said, so somebody has, well, I know Juan Ortega for one, because he was trying to get into it the day that I got it, got it from him, you know. But um, I said, somebody has been trying to get into it and they've been trying very, very hard because it's locked up. Well, so he said, well, when do you think you could bring it down here? And I said, well, it'll probably be Monday. This, I think this, when I went down there, I think it was a Wednesday. I said, well, it'll probably be Monday, Tuesday of next week. Okay. Well, he said, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to do everything I can to help you. And this, and this. that's the last thing I heard from that guy. The last thing I would call down there to ask about the phone. If they got into the phone. No. I would ask to speak to, to the guy, which at this point in time, I don't even remember what his name is. Like, I, I don't know what, who it was that I spoke with. But I just know that he was the, the lead investigator in Marion County. I mean, that's the way he was introduced to me anyway. But then I just finally, like, I, I called, like, every two or three weeks, and I would ask about the phone. And I just, finally, I just, I, I didn't call anymore. Like I said, they're probably not going to give me the phone back. You know what I'm saying? They're probably not going to do what they're supposed to do. They ain't even no telling if they even have the phone anymore at this point. While we can't state it for certain, we believe the investigator that Kimberly met with at the Marion County Sheriff's Office was Jeff Davis. He was also one of the investigators that worked on Jessica Hamby's missing person case. At that time, he was an investigator but now he is the chief deputy at the sheriff's office. Kimberly also gave them the login information for Jeremy's Facebook and Messenger accounts. You know, I gave them the password because there was a lot of stuff on Jeremy's Facebook pertaining to certain things that were going on around that time. And so I gave them the password. Within a week, Jeremy's password was changed, and I can't, you know, I could not get back into the thing. So I don't know who changed that password. 
but I know I'm the only one who has the password because I had it logged in on my phone and that's how I, I changed the password. So I got it. You know what I'm saying? Because he used my phone like right before he came up missing. After hearing Kim's description of the events leading up to Jeremy's body being found and knowing that it was the information Jessica Hamby provided that led to the discovery of Jeremy's body, we asked Kim if an autopsy had been performed. I did ask them if an autopsy had been done, and they said no, that they didn't do one because they were considering it suicide because he was found hanging in the tree. And I said, well, so y'all are not going to do an autopsy? Well, no. But the first thing I got was, It's been too long to do an autopsy. He's been dead too long to do an autopsy. And I just kind of looked at him. And then we continued on with this conversation. And I said, so there's no possible way y'all can do an autopsy. And I was told, if you want to pay for it, an autopsy can be done. And I said, well, I guess there's not going to be one done. Because, I mean, at that point in time, I was in no financial situation. You know, I was not stable at that point in time, you know. We reached out to the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences and confirmed that the state lab did not do an autopsy on Jeremy. We wanted to try and confirm the stories about what Jeremy allegedly hung himself with and try to put to rest some of the rumors that he had been shot, stabbed, or otherwise injured prior to being hanged, and also try to determine if there was any indication that his body may have been stored in a freezer or other location that would delay decomposition. Since DFS had never seen Jeremy's body, we turned to the Marion County Coroner's Office. When Jeremy died, Randy Jackson was the Marion County Coroner and had been in that position for more than three decades. He also owned and operated one of the local funeral homes in Hamilton. Mr. Jackson did not win re-election in 2018 and was replaced by Glenda Cochran as the county coroner. Mrs. Cochran told us that no records for the coroner's office were turned over to her when she took office, so she had no files or records pertaining to Jeremy's death. To her knowledge, any records that existed from the time that Mr. Jackson was coroner would most likely be held by Hamilton and Hackleburg Funeral Home, which was owned and operated by Mr. Jackson until his death in 2021. This information was correct, and we did obtain copies of the coroner's records regarding Jeremy Abbott's death under an Open Records Act request. Along with a handwritten note stating that these pages were all of the information the coroner had we received a page of handwritten notes, a written report form titled Marion County Coroner Randy Jackson, and the front and back of an Alabama Uniform Incident Offense Report, typically called a police report. The handwritten notes consist of Kim's phone number, Jeremy's full name, date of birth, and social security number, and a time and date notation. The coroner's form gives the date and Jeremy's personal information, Kim's name and contact number, and lists the cause of death 
as suicide hanging and the time of death as unknown. It says Jeremy was pronounced dead at 10.30 a.m., no blood or urine sample was taken, and the body was received by Randy Jackson's funeral home. Under remarks, it says the last time Jeremy was seen was June 17, 2017, and he was found hanging in a tree on July 21, 2017. There are spaces on this form to record the time the coroner was called and who they were notified by, but those are blank, as is the space for a signature by the person receiving the body and the coroner's office. The Uniform Incident Offense Report states that it was made on July 24, 2017 at 3.10 p.m., and the agency listed is the Marion County Sheriff's Office. The type of incident or offense is listed as documentation, death by hanging. The victim is described as a white male, 20 years old, with no gang or hate bias indicated, and no boxes checked for suspected use of alcohol or drugs, although type of criminal activity is marked, using consuming. It seems odd to me that with all of the boxes and sections on this form that were left completely blank, that the investigator chose to complete this section. Jeremy was a drug user. We aren't disputing that. But I thought law enforcement investigations were about facts and evidence. As already stated, the police report indicates that no blood or urine samples were taken for toxicology, so I can't help but wonder how the investigator came to conclude it was a fact that Jeremy was using consuming. Did he take Josh Hyde's word for it? Jeremy's friend that told his mother he was never coming home again? the man who allegedly changed his story at least three times, the same man who reported he last saw his upset friend walking into the woods and never went to check on him or look for him? I'm not law enforcement, but I think those boxes are meant for facts, not speculation. The report goes on to indicate that the incident began on June 23rd 2017 at 4 p.m. and ended on July 21, 2017 at 3.12 a.m. These dates and times are very interesting since the beginning date is after Kim filed the missing persons report on June 19th and the time noted on the day he was found is very specific. 3.12 a.m. What occurred at 3.12 a.m. in the woods on Benefield Farm Road that would make that an important and specific time to make note of, as it being the end of the incident? The coroner's form stated that Jeremy was pronounced at 10.30 a.m. Was his body found at 3.12 a.m.? If so, why did it take over seven hours for the coroner to conclude that he was deceased? 
our sources indicated to us that the two Haleyville law enforcement officers arrived on Benefield Farm Road and began their search around 6 a.m. They also indicated that it didn't take very long to locate Jeremy because of the strong odor. The location is described as having unknown weather and being in a field or woods. The case's status is marked pending and the reporting officer is given as Jeff Davis, currently the chief deputy of the Marion County Sheriff's Office, and as mentioned earlier, one of the investigators that worked on Jessica Hamby's case. The back of the form provides more personal information on Jeremy, including his full name, address, social security number, and lists him as five foot seven inches tall, 130 pounds. Under weapons used, the box marked is other dangerous, and the type of injury marked is other major injury. The location given for the place of occurrence is the Benefield Farm Road address that is the same address listed on the current sex offender registry for Joshua Levi Hyde. The conviction that requires Hyde to register as a sex offender appears to have happened later in 2017, after Jeremy was found. There is no information filled in for suspect or witness information on the police report. Finally, the report includes a short narrative about Jeremy's case. Going back to the location where Jeremy was found and the confusing information Kim was given about what he was found hanging with, it is almost unbelievable how Jeremy's death seems to be shrouded in fog. We have heard various different descriptions of the location where Jeremy's body was found. While they all agree he was found hanging in a tree, usually a pine tree about 20 feet off the ground, and they all describe the same 30-acre property on Benefield Farm Road, that's where the similarities end. Sometimes the location is around the camper that Josh Hyde was supposedly living in. Sometimes the location is around a trailer across the street. In some reports, Josh Hyde was there when Jeremy was found, and he was questioned and possibly even taken into custody on an unrelated charge that day, while other reports state that Josh wasn't there and wasn't interviewed that day. We can at least say for certain that Josh Hyde was in fact arrested and booked into the Marion County Jail the same day, July 21st, 2017. There is still a question of where exactly Jeremy was found, however. This got our attention because for many years there was a small memorial for Jeremy on the property at a pine tree where family members would place flowers and go to remember Jeremy. On one of those occasions, the owner of the property, reportedly Josh Hyde's grandfather, came out of his house and told one of Jeremy's family members, you know he wasn't found hanging in that tree. In the last episode, you heard that the day Jeremy Abbott was found, his mother Kimberly received calls from people in the community who saw the law enforcement activity on Benefield Farm Road, and she knew Jeremy had been found. She made repeated phone calls to the Haleyville Police Department 
trying to get information about what was happening, and she was told by the dispatcher that answered her calls that no one had been found, that they didn't know of any search taking place, and that all of their officers were at the police station. Kimberly has felt all these years that she was lied to, and it really added insult to her injury. After the last episode, we were contacted by a couple of people who wanted to clarify that situation, and the description of what occurred that day is just another example of the fog around Jeremy's death. One of these individuals described the search that day as a secret squirrel mission between investigator Tim Stein and an off-duty Haleyville Police Department officer. Both told us that no one in the department knew the search was happening, and they certainly didn't know at the time that Jeremy had been found. Another example of the fog around Jeremy's death can be found in the description of the belt that Kim was told he hung himself with. One officer described a belt like you'd wear in your pants, while another described an automotive belt. We have also heard rumors that Jeremy had been shot or stabbed or that his legs were broken. We looked for written records to help us find the truth on those issues. Here is a narrative from the police report we obtained from the coroner's records. On 7-21-2017, the Marion County Sheriff's Office was contacted by Haleyville PD about a missing person case they had been working on. Investigator Tim Stein called investigator Daryl Spencer and told him that they had been looking for Jeremy Abbott, who had been missing for over a month. Investigator Stein said that they was told that he was last seen on Benefield Farm Road and has not been seen since. He said that he and Sergeant Jason Williams went to Benefield Farm Road, which is located in Marion County, and started walking in the woods. He said that they finally located Abbott in a pine tree. Investigator Stein said that is when he notified the Marion County Sheriff's Office. Once the Marion County Sheriff's Office arrived at the scene, the scene was processed and recovered the body out of the tree with the assistance of Haleyville PD and Fire Department. The Marion County Coroner was called and the body was taken to the Hamilton Funeral Home. The body was checked at the funeral home to see if he had any broken bones in his legs or arms, and there were none found. The only formal documentation we've been able to obtain from sources that should provide details on the state of Jeremy's body and manner of his death provide no information that backs up how the conclusion was reached that Jeremy's death was a suicide or even that hanging resulted in his death. All we know from this documentation is that an autopsy wasn't performed, no blood or urine samples were taken, and somehow the coroner was able to determine there were no arm or leg fractures when the body arrived at his funeral home. Maybe they have an x-ray machine but if they do, it would be good to know what it revealed for the rest of the body. What we don't know from this documentation is what the condition of the body was, what the level of decomposition was, 
What clothing and other personal effects were present? What was used to hang the victim? If there were marks or furrows on the neck? If there was insect or animal activity indicated? The questions could go on and on, but they are the usual questions that are answered and documented even in a non-suspicious death. The reports say Jeremy died by hanging, and it was important enough to document that his legs weren't broken, but not his neck. The sad fact is, we know more that would fall into the category of forensic evidence from Kim's description of Jeremy when she saw his body at the funeral home. His skin was black, but part of his chest tattoo could be seen. Ultimately, Marion County ruled Jeremy's death a suicide and closed their investigation. In fact, sources at the scene told us that Jeremy's death was determined to be a suicide before his body ever left the scene that day. And that information is supported by several details, such as Kimberly being asked where she wanted his body taken. That is a clear indication that they'd already determined there would be no autopsy. Kimberly was also allowed to see the body. That would not have been allowed prior to the autopsy if the case was being treated as a death investigation. Lastly, and most compelling, Kimberly was told by both investigators at Haleyville PD and the Marion County Sheriff's Office that Jeremy committed suicide and there would be no investigation. Jeremy's death being determined to be a suicide at the scene is quite significant, and here's why. The coroner, Randy Jackson, had a man that assisted him by picking up bodies and transporting them to where they needed to go. Someone very familiar with the arrangement identified the handwritten notes from the scene as the handwriting of that man and not the coroner. Initially, one of our sources on the scene told us that the coroner determined Jeremy's death to be a suicide, but evidence suggests that the coroner was not on the scene. We went back to our source after this discovery to specifically ask if the coroner was there on the scene. The source would not state that Randy Jackson was there, and based on what he was willing to say, we were given the clear impression that our suspicions are correct and that it was very likely the coroner's helper who responded to the scene. So if that's true, and we believe it is, just who was it that ruled Jeremy's death a suicide? Many of the people we've talked to about Jeremy, including Kim, insist that Jeremy's death was not a suicide. Actually, we haven't spoken to a single person that believes it was a suicide. We've talked about hanging deaths before, most recently when we covered the death of Hayden Mayberry in Walker County. As I researched hangings during that time, I found something pretty interesting. In medical legal practice, every hanging is considered to be a suicide until it is proven otherwise. What's important with hanging deaths is that the circumstances be completely considered. 
Were there indications that the individual was suicidal? Was there a suicide note? Is the location, pattern of decomposition, and the manner of the hanging consistent with the individual hanging themselves? In a nutshell, is this a suspicious hanging? In the case of a hanging death involving someone who had initially been reported as missing, there are additional considerations to be mindful of. Are there indications that the individual was alive during the time that they were missing before the death occurred? Were other people present with the person while they were missing? And are their statements consistent and verifiable? Were drugs involved? Was there a fight, argument, disagreement, or other confrontation? Were any of the individual's belongings found somewhere else? In particular, did the individual have a cell phone, and was it with the body, or did someone else have it, and is there evidence it was in use after the death? Answers to any of these questions, even when those answers are circumstantial at best, can be important indicators for investigators and forensics in determining the true manner of death. In our opinion, a suspicious hanging death should only be ruled a suicide in the absence of any evidence to the contrary, only if the circumstances that cast suspicion on the case are shown to be false by other evidence should the death be ruled a suicide rather than undetermined. I think it's obvious that this case is nothing but a sea of red flags that were ignored by investigators. Here's just a few of the things we've noted that should have ensured that Jeremy Abbott had an autopsy. Josh Hyde sent Jeremy's mom a message telling her to file a missing persons report because Jeremy wouldn't be coming home again. How did Josh Hyde know that Jeremy would never be coming home again? If he knew a month earlier that Jeremy had killed himself, why not just say that so that his body could be recovered? Jessica Hamby confided in numerous people including some you haven't heard about yet, that she knew where Jeremy's body was and that she was in fear for her life. It is a fact that Jessica Hamby did give law enforcement the location of Jeremy's body. The officer that Jessica provided this information to promised to keep her safe and put her in protective custody if necessary. By the way, This isn't something that small local police departments or even sheriff's offices can promise or provide. Regardless, there are at least two witnesses to this promise. If a law enforcement officer is promising protection and safety in this situation, I think it's a safe assumption to make that she wasn't telling him the location of where Jeremy killed himself. She was sending him to the location where Jeremy's killers left his body. Once Jeremy was reported missing, there were countless people who made false statements about seeing Jeremy alive. More than one of those people admitted, even to law enforcement, that they were forced and threatened to make those statements by Jesse Abbott. Jesse Abbott was reportedly pretending to be Jeremy to try to fool people into believing that they saw Jeremy. 
Juan Ortega got caught red-handed with Jeremy's phone, and he was trying to guess the password to gain access to it. When forced to give the phone to Jeremy's mom by Carrie Abbott, Juan cried and stated that they were going to kill him. Juan then abruptly and unexpectedly moved to Texas and, to our knowledge, has never returned. If Jeremy simply walked into the woods and killed himself by hanging himself 18 to 20 feet up in a tree, how did Juan Ortega gain possession of Jeremy's phone? Jeremy is said to have been found hanging in a tree with a clear view to numerous people on a daily basis for 33 days per law enforcement. Jeremy was reportedly found hanging from the lowest limb on a pine tree, and that limb was estimated to be 18 to 20 feet high. It's questionable that a man would be able to scale a tree of that height and hang himself with a clothing belt. Jeremy didn't own or wear a belt. If any of Josh Hyde's three versions of the story is true, where did Jeremy get the belt? The Marion County Sheriff's Office investigator told Jeremy's mom that he hung himself with a belt off a car. If any of you are listening and are able to explain to us how that is a feasible story, please contact us. Here's a big one. Our sources on the scene told us that Jeremy was located because the investigator and officer could smell him when they reached the edge of the woods. The odor was described to us as being quite strong. If you remember, Kimberly also described how awful the smell was when she went to the funeral home to view his body. This is extremely significant. We had our own thoughts and suspicions about this, so we consulted with a qualified physician. He pointed us to the forensics library and an article that describes the five steps of decomposition of human remains. This article was very informative, and it noted the average time that each of these stages last. 24-plus days after death, is considered to be the dry stage. It is the final stage of decomposition, and the article notes that in this stage, the human remains are primarily just bones, a little dried skin and cartilage. It states that there is typically no odor at this stage. Jeremy was found 32 days after he was reported missing, but the investigators indicated they believed he had been dead at least one day prior to that. So Jeremy had been deceased 33 days at the time he was found. The decomposition rate is often greatly impacted by temperature and environment. Lower temperatures can slow decomposition, but warm temperatures accelerate those timelines. Alabama weather in June and July is hot and humid, so Jeremy would have decomposed much more quickly than the time frames noted. To sum it up, if Jeremy had been hanging in that tree for 33 days, the strong odor described by our sources on the scene would not have been present. This is something that investigators and a coroner conducting death investigations would be expected to know. 
We have consulted with several doctors and others with experience in death investigations. None of them think it is likely that Jeremy would have still been hanging from a tree limb 33 days later in the Alabama summer heat. Jeremy's mom was able to confirm that the remains were her son's because the tattoo on his chest was still visible. She also described his skin as being black. Again, we've been told that this description does not fit what you would expect to see after 33 days of decomposition in the Alabama heat and humidity. I can't help but wonder why the Marion County Sheriff's Office investigator wanted Jeremy's phone. After all, by the time he asked for the phone, Jeremy had already been buried. They'd already determined his death to be a suicide, informed his mother there would be no investigation, told her she should drop it because nothing would be done, denied her valid request for an autopsy, and even tried to mislead her by telling her that he was too decomposed to have an autopsy. Not only did the investigator want the phone and the login information for Jeremy's Facebook and Messenger accounts, according to Jeremy's mom, they changed the password to the account, which blocked her access to it. They never returned her phone calls again, and they kept Jeremy's phone. You wouldn't expect a phone to be returned in a case that was under investigation, but this one wasn't being investigated. What gave them the right to change passwords and keep her son's phone? There is absolutely no justification for the decision to not have an autopsy done on Jeremy Abbott. The office of the coroner is a very important and potentially powerful elected position. Many people may not realize that under Alabama law, section 11-5-5 and subsequent sections, calls for county coroner to assume the duties of the sheriff when the sheriff's position is vacant. The sheriff is deemed incompetent or imprisoned or when the sheriff is party to an action. If the sheriff is imprisoned, the coroner becomes the keeper of the jail. And if the sheriff is a party to any cause or proceeding, the judge of probate can make an affidavit directing the coroner to execute summons, writ, or other process in the cause of proceeding. In other words, the coroner may be directed to serve legal process on the sheriff when he or she is a party to a legal action. The coroner's duties described under Alabama Code Title 15, Chapter 4, read very much like the duties of a law enforcement officer when the officer believes a crime has been committed. They include taking sworn statements, summoning a jury and witnesses, administering oaths, and refusing to answer the coroner's questions relating to a death can be charged as a misdemeanor. Alabama Code Section 15-4-2 describes the coroner's duties with regard to examination of bodies and reporting. Those duties include going to the location when the coroner is informed that a person is dead in the county and examining the body to determine and report the cause of death. 
if the coroner cannot determine the cause of death, the law allows the coroner to summon any physician or surgeon to perform an external examination of the body and report his or her opinion on the cause of death to the coroner in writing. If that surgeon or physician is unable to determine the cause of death from an external examination and the coroner has reasonable cause to believe that the deceased came to his death by unlawful means, the coroner may order any physician or surgeon to perform an autopsy or internal examination of the body and report their findings to the coroner in writing. By not conducting and documenting an external examination of Jeremy Abbott's body in light of the circumstances and statements surrounding his death, it is our opinion that the coroner failed in his duties. Given those circumstances and statements, which persist to this day, the coroner has the authority to order a physician to conduct an external examination and conduct an autopsy. Nothing in the law requires the approval or agreement of the sheriff, district attorney, or anyone else for the coroner to make this decision. And the coroner has the full authority and duty under law to take statements and question witnesses in regards to a death in the county. Based on the documentation provided, it doesn't appear to us that any of this happened. Even though Jeremy had no criminal history, Jeremy's death was determined to be a suicide because he had a history as a drug user in the county and was found hanging from a tree by some sort of belt with no autopsy, little or no external examination, and no investigation. By contrast, a year and a month later in neighboring Winston County, a young woman of nearly the same age was found hanging. The death was determined to be a suicide by hanging, just like Jeremy. Also like Jeremy, that woman had not been seen for a period of time, drug use was a possible factor, and changing statements and rumors of other injuries circled the community. In her case, however, the county coroner ordered an external examination, which was performed by the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences. Because of that examination, we know that there was a pre-mortem forensic evidence that indicated the death was caused by the yellow rope around her neck with a double knot behind the left ear. We even know the dimensions of that rope and knot. We know the level of decomposition of her body, insect activity, appearance of her skin, and location of lividity, that tattoos and scars were still observable, and that photographs, fingerprints, and biological specimens were obtained for toxicology and other testing. Because the Winston County coroner took actions that were within his power and lawful duty, questions about this young woman's death can be answered. There were no other serious wounds to her body. The rope was around her neck and crushed her windpipe, causing her death. The level of decomposition and insect activity were consistent with her being where she was found for the approximate amount of time the investigation indicated. Of course, that doesn't completely prevent speculation and rumors, some that could be plausible from forming, but it does answer questions about her death 
that still keep Jeremy's family awake at night and wondering what and who to believe. Unfortunately, Kimberly and all of Jeremy's loved ones and all the residents of the county were failed by law enforcement, and it's not too late for them to right their wrong. While those who took that oath to serve and protect did nothing to provide them answers, she did get some from a very surprising source. Before his death, Carrie Abbott, Kimberly's brother and Jesse Abbott's dad, told Kimberly what he said he learned about Jeremy's murder. Because my brother said he threatened Jesse, and that's how he got Jesse to tell him everything that happened. In the next episode, you'll hear the information Carrie shared with Kim about Jeremy's murder, what he told her about Jessica's disappearance, and what Jessica did immediately after her release from the Winston County Jail the day that Jeremy Abbott was found. Join us next time as we further explore what happened to Jeremy Abbott and as we continue to investigate and push for justice for Jessica and now Jeremy Abbott too. If you have any information that could help solve the disappearance of Jessica Hamby or the death of Jeremy Abbott, please email me at secretstruecrime at gmail.com or call our confidential tip line at 205-282-0740. Michael and I will ensure that all information gets to the right place right away. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check us out on Patreon. We have filled it with great information about Susan and Evan, Eric and Gypsy, and we will be adding additional content about Jessica and Jeremy. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All of the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot. The tragedies we highlight and investigate have had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. We don't burden them with the additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find the answers they need that are so long overdue. For as little as $5 per month, you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Patreon.com slash Secrets Crime. I'll also post the link on our Facebook page. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player of choice and by giving us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcast. We are active on social media and will often share photos of Jessica. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. This episode was co-written by me and Michael Fleming. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at precisionpodcasting.com.